0: My friends, I do believe that we are live, and I thank you very much for joining today. Today we're going to complete a bit of a journey. This is a journey of of superiority, the superiority of the person of faith versus the proverbial or maybe even imaginary alchemist. If you're joining for the first time today, I'm glad you're here. You will benefit. I, I think you'll benefit. You're studying Torah, you can always benefit. But you benefit much more if you actually are following this series. Because each verse, or each class, I should say, or episode, can stand on its own, but it is best appreciated when one builds on the other. Rebbeinu Bachaya, he is making the case for trust. Not just for faith, because... Faith can be experienced in an atmospheric or distant way. That is to say, I can believe for real, but it doesn't really change me. Yeah, I I believe in those things. I believe there's a God. But practically speaking, I mean, I need to do what I need to do. In other words, the faith remains something distant. It's not in hand. And that's a problem. Because faith has to be nourished, and faith has to be developed and nurtured, and faith has to be something that influences the way we actually live, the way we feel, and the way we view the world around us. And only a person who achieves this by virtue of what is called betochen, a word that is not even mentioned in the five books of Moses, and perhaps perhaps isn't really a mitzvah unto itself, as we talked about at great length in the earliest episodes. But it is a word that is found copiously in the later scriptures. It seems that the prophets exhorted the people. One could perhaps in his mind's eye say that you imagine their sermons to be ones in which they exhorted the people to come to Betochen that it wasn't enough to say, I believe. And you can't just profess faith. That faith had to be actualized. One of the most famous of the prophets who bet the farm on making Emunah turn into Betochen was Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. We've referenced Elijah. We will be speaking about him as we continue to move our way through these gates of trust. But Elijah said to the people, can't believe in God on Shabbos and the Baal on Sunday. It doesn't work that way. Because faith is a a sum zero game if it's to be personalized. So that's what this series is about. It's about betochen. And betochen which means that I have not just faith but trust in God. I'm quite comfortable leaving my affairs, my future, my welfare in God's hands. I trust Him. I know that God loves me as much as He loves you. And He will take care of us. And a key element in ensuring that Hashem actually does take care of us in real time is real betochen. Real, clear trust in Hashem. And Rebbeinu makes the case, he says, so imagine, imagine you could find the key to unlocking riches. Suppose you would be able to get rich quick, and you could find the scheme, and you'd have endless amounts of money and wherewithal power and ability at your fingertips, and you can always make more. So who would that be in the Middle Ages? (laughs) The alchemist. You can always find some iron. You can always turn that into silver and turn the silver into gold. You are, as they say, set for life. Got it made in the shade. And Rebbeinah says, guess what? Even the alchemist, who would it would seem have no worries in life, when you start to think about it, has got lots of worries. But if you will develop this natural organic ability called Betochen, we all have it. We can all succeed at this. Oh, it's not easy. But it can be done. It's in you to have trust in Hashem. And if you develop that, and if you can live by it, you'll be superior to the alchemist in ten ways. We've covered the ground up till here, and we've learned about nine different ways. The tenth way, says Rabbeinu Bechaya, is the alchemist's fatal secret. In other words, the secret that he guards, he's guarding with his life. And should the cover be blown, he may pay with his life. But the Baal HaBitochen, the person who has achieved mastery over his emotions, the person who knows with certitude that Hashem is going to provide for him, and he trusts in Hashem with nary a worry under the sky, that person has no secrets to keep. The secret of his success is something that he can make known far and wide with no risk whatsoever. So each has a secret and the secret of each of these people leads them to live the best of lives. One might pay for his life with that secret if he doesn't keep it and the other Really has no secret or nothing to hide at all. Let's take a look inside, and as we continue to study from the actual words of Rabbeinu Bachayah as they were translated by Ramosh ibn Tibbin into Hebrew. If you're following along in the new Kihat version, we would be on page 23. The Ha'asiri, and the tenth method or manner in which the person who has betochen has an advantage is more virtuous, is more superior and better positioned to succeed at life than the alchemist, is as follows. Baal the alchemist, im should his secret become known? sibas moisoi, That will well become the cause of his demise. In other words, if the secret cause of how the alchemist succeeds becomes public knowledge, he may pay with his life. Why? I mean, I understand that everybody would be jealous of the alchemist. Why would he pay with his life? Why is Rabbi B'chayi so sure of that? Well, let's read what it says. And then we can talk about how various scholars understood his supposition in different ways. Because all of the effort and hard work that he's investing in his alchemy, we're not going to call it nature. It's unnatural. And because it is contrary to the proverbial rules of nature, so he who controls everything will control him. I want to break for a moment. And we'll come back to he who controls and what who 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 is he and how, how will the alchemist pay with his life? But first I want to talk about the words Im Yivoda inyone. What is the meaning of the words yivoda inyone? So let's begin with a commentary. Entitled, Marpele Nefesh. He suggests that the meaning of the word, What the author means to say is, If his methodology, he's got a secret behavior, I don't know, a secret code, he he does something. I don't know the secret. <laughs> you don't know the secret. Nobody knows the secret because the secret doesn't exist, actually. But assuming that somebody actually could crack the code of the, the uh, nuclear physics, and he knows how to turn iron into silver or silver into gold. Well, if Yevada Inyane, Inyane isn't really... See, in Hebrew, a sod is a secret. Here it's Inyane, his thing. If his thing, his little trade secret, becomes known... It'll be the cause of his death. In the commentary known as Tov Halavanon, he says, Look, it's not as if somebody discovering the secret is going to cause his demise. However, if it becomes public knowledge that he is an alchemist, as the Tevah puts out, that people find out he is an alchemist. I want to stop you for a moment here. It is possible that the issue here isn't people discovering what he is doing to turn the iron into silver or silver into gold, but rather that he does this. The alchemist doesn't hang a shingle outside, saying, hi, bring me your iron, and I'll turn it into silver for you for a small fee. The alchemist takes the iron and in his lab he does his magic, his special thing, and then he sells silver or sells gold, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's actually doing. We're not talking about the secret recipe of Coca-Cola. that's a different kind of trade secret. The trade secret here is what he's actually doing, not how he does it, but the fact that he's got some kind of shtick. Up his sleeve that he is not a typical entrepreneur that the pawn shop he runs or the precious metals that he purports to be buying in bullion form and then developing no no that's not really the case that's a front what he's actually doing is something else so let's try to relate this to you know maybe our modern times one of the most lucrative industries is narcotics people make literally millions of dollars many years ago i got involved with helping a young man who was caught in a massive drug bust and he came from a decent family and i said why why did you do this and he said Easy money, Rabbi, he said. Easy money. It's just so easy. And that's, it's very tempting for people. Because if you can make money easily, you know, you have a front. You claim to be doing some kind of business. But in fact, it's not really true. And you found a more lucrative way to turn a buck. But you don't want anybody to know what you do behind the scenes. It's illegal. Let's use another example. The Ponzi scheme. You took people's money, and you're paying them a return. Never mind that you're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. The fact is, as long as you can continue the charade, you're safe. Unfortunately for Bernie Madoff, at some point, it all came crashing down. He had to come up with the money, but there was no money. This criminal had three floors of enormous offices in Manhattan sending faxes from one floor to the next in the days of fax machines. Constant activity. It looked like he was involved in multifarious kinds of investments and that he was a brilliant money manager. Really, all he really was was a brilliant crook. I thought to myself at the time when his cover was blown and he went down flaming I thought to myself did Bernie Madoff start off planning to be Bernie Madoff or was he a small money manager who realized that he could sell a bill of goods take money from one and give some money back to the other and in the meantime siphon off some for himself and he started playing a small game but the small game began to spin out of control And my guess is, before he knew it, he was in over his head. Now, I'm not defending the actions of this terrible fellow. He's an awful individual. He's a criminal. He ruined people's lives in a very real way. That's not cool. That's not okay. At the same time, if you're not careful, and if you don't function with full honesty, You can get yourself into some very serious trouble. It's a slippery slope. Let's be honest. Not everybody in business is so honest. And there are people who are doing, well, just exaggerated things. Creating expenses that don't really exist. And you don't want anybody to know what you're doing. creating business that really isn't so. And whether you're cheating on your taxes or cheating on your customers, you have a, you have a secret. <laughs> One wise fellow once said to me, he says, sometimes he says, I'm tempted, he says, but then I remember the words of the Talmud, that when you behave inappropriately, unlawfully you always get caught it's a matter of time and he said to me and i quote he says anything i don't want in the five o'clock news i'm not prepared to do it's not a Yerusha kind of expression the person who reveres or fears Hashem should say i don't want to do anything Hashem doesn't want me to do but sometimes the Yetzirah is uh, very very demanding and people have bills to pay and they have challenges and issues and here's an easy way to earn a quick buck and they're tempted. It's very tempting. I sit in judgment over no one. Who am I to judge anybody? Who, who knows what I would do if I would be in that situation? If I would have lucrative opportunities available to me and I can make a wink-wink and do all... I don't know. God forbid. Maybe I would fall. So I'm not judging any individual, but I can objectively say that such a thing is wrong. The rule is almost always that if it's too good to be true... It's too good to be true. Quick, rich, get rich schemes they're, they're really schemes. They're not, it's, not, it's not real business. Ultimately, people have to put the hours in, work hard, and with Hashem's help, you get the bracha. But things which cut corners to be able to achieve financial success almost always, if not always, involve things you don't want talked about in the five o'clock news or in today's language splashed across social media so the alchemist he's got secrets he never told anybody that the silver or gold he sells is kind of counterfeit it isn't the real deal why would he tell them They, they wouldn't be ready to pay he's not telling them that the diamonds he's selling are actually cubic zirconians why would he tell them? Then he wouldn't want to pay the money. And he's here to turn a quick buck and run. So the alchemist, it's not about the trade secrets. We've talked about that previously. If people find out what he's up to, not how he does it, but what he does, it'll be his end. The Pas Lechem is kind of troubled with Yevada Inyani, he says it sounds awfully like something we talked about previously. We already talked about people who live in fear of being discovered. So what's the difference between the previous method, namely, the person who is afraid of being discovered, which Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar mentioned in more than one of the methods, that there's a fear and an anxiety that comes along. And now we're talking about anxiety and fear again. And no, uh, says, not so simple. Lamaila previously, He's afraid of somebody finding out what he knows. But, Now it's not just a fear of keeping your trade secrets, secret, or making sure nobody knows what you do. Now it's a question of, so what happens if you're actually discovered? Forget the fear. The fear is there constantly. Method 10 is, and then when it gets out, it's not about the fear, it's about the consequence. So then, once be'emes y'vodah, This wonderful little, gimmick that he's created for himself, this fantastic scheme which is pulling the cash in and enabling him to live a high life, all of a sudden turns out to be the very source of his demise. If you think about it in modern terms, people get sucked into Ponzi schemes or narcotics or shady characters. Once word gets out, once people realize what you're really doing, you're in serious danger. Yeah, you may get rich quick. You may also end up in a heck of a lot of trouble. And that's what Abedin HaBachayah talks about here. So what's, so what's wrong with what he does? Why wouldn't he want to tell everybody don't ask me how, but yeah, I, I turned I turned the iron into silver. What's wrong with that? Shines, doesn't it? <laughs> Nobody knows the difference. So Bein HaBachayah says the fact is the fact remains that it is hepach hanhogasayilum. It flies in the face of nature. You take a look in the pas He says, what does it mean? It's hepach hanhogasayilum. Lafi shehur miyagdaila. You're a charlatan. He says this alchemist is not telling the truth transforming metal ordinary metals into precious or semi-precious metals it's not really gold I mean this whole thing is a funny conversation because alchemy isn't real but imagine it could have been real so you wouldn't really, it wouldn't really be gold it would look like gold it mimics gold and he says, it's not like Moses is transforming the staff into a serpent and the water into blood because that happens Hashem that happens by virtue of God's decree. That's not just what you can see on the surface. Because the truth is, he says, whatever the alchemist does isn't changing the nuclear physics. He isn't changing the intrinsic makeup of this item, but rather, l'maris ha'oyin, appearance's sake. Now, the Paslechem never heard of nuclear physics. (laughs) I certainly never heard of it. So, So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, the water that turned into blood, the staff that turned into a snake, that's real, but this is not real. And how would you define or differentiate between one reality and the other? It looks like gold. It shines like gold. It feels like gold. It is gold. What difference does it make? So that's why the Paslechim has to lean on the metaphor of the biblical plagues which represented transformation and he starts just from the first two and doesn't go through the rest. What might he mean? I obviously don't know but this is my supposition. There's a mechilta. Mechilta is the Medrash Halacha that accompanies the books of Genesis and Exodus. So the mechilta is like a midrashim and Halachas. The Gemara the Mishnah focuses entirely on halacha. Just tell me what to do. Here's the rule. Here's the case. Here's the situation. Here's the way a Torah, Torah wants you to behave. The Mechilta, conversely, takes a look at each verse and analyzes the verse, interprets the verse. It's from the same genre as the Mishnah, same sages of the Mishnah. So the Mechilta there has a discussion or records a dispute between Rabbi Eliezer, and between Rabbi Akiva. What's the dispute? The dispute's about the Makot. Incidentally, this might be familiar to you because it's in the Passover handbook. Known as the Haggadah. Rabbi Eliezer says that every makah that Hashem brought on the Mitzrayim was Arba Makos. Every plague was four plagues. Yeah, you think the Nile just turned... To, to blood, it was much more. It was, it was four times, a, four, a, a, a quadruple plague. Rabbi Kiva says, <laughs> four times? That's nothing. It was five times of a plague. Every marker was five plagues. First of all, what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean that it was four plagues or five plagues? Secondly, what is the argument here? Truly, on the surface, these words of our sages seem somewhat ridiculous. So the great Rishon, Rabbeinu Yomtaf Esveili, who was the fourth, uh, the, pardon me, the 12th century leader of Spanish Jewry living in Seville, the Rashiva of Seville, the Ritva, he says the following, 13th century. He says, what is the meaning of Kol Maka, Hoisa Sheldal, the Ritva wrote a commentary on the Haggadah. He says, But pshat if you want to just like understand what this means, that every makkah, that every plague was comprised of four plagues, he says it means, <laughs> it means that the four elements were blighted or changed, struck with the four elements. So Maimonides talks about this in the laws of Yisodei HaTorah and it seems very much, very much to be in keeping with the language the ancient Greeks but I would like to pose it one of two things either the ancient Greeks were not nearly as dumb as we think they are and they were extremely enlightened and advanced in their understanding of the physics or it looks like Greek language but it isn't because the Greek science is antiquated and Torah is eternal so it may have used the language of the day but it never meant what they meant. If you believe in Torah, and I do, then you believe that the ideas and ideals of Torah are actually eternal. Eternal means intrinsically true. So you know what the four elements are. You've heard it. In in Greek, it's water, soil, wind, and fire. Eishruach mayim afar in Hebrew. Rambam talks about this. Although, the Rambam tells you that you must know when we speak of these four elements, we're not talking about physical soil at all. Physical soil, he says, is comprised of four elements. It just has a dominant emphasis on the offer, on the dust, or the earth, or soil element of it. And physical fire isn't only really fire. It just has an emphasis, a primary emphasis on the element of fire, but actually it's water and it's, it's, and it's wind and it's earth, etc. So what does this mean? First of all, I don't know exactly what it means because the Rambam says that these four elements in their purest organic sense are not known to humanity. We only know physicality at a certain point. But it is fairly easy to suggest in modern language that what we're talking about is solids, Ufer, liquid, mayim, ruach, what translates as wind, is actually gas, and then finally ash, not fire, but energy or electrons. In other words, that all of existence is comprised of solids, liquids, gas, and energy. And there's a constant Transformation from one into the other. One flows into the other and then the circle continues. It's not exactly the language of nuclear physics. But it posits that all of existence is comprised of a microscopic structure that our eyes cannot see. The H is easily the electrons. The neutrons And the protons, which are held together by electrons, could easily be the solid. There is a a certain gas that is found within everything, which is thinner than the actual, what we call nuclear physics. And then there's an element of liquidity in everything. So, the Ritva says, according to Rabbi Eliezer, what our sages understood was that the water didn't look like blood it was plasma it actually became plasma the transformation was not only on the surface the transformation was down to the tiny building blocks of existence that the very nuclear physics had changed in other words the water really was blood the staff or the stick really became a snake or a serpent really and truly if you would cut off a piece of that stick when it was a snake and put it under a microscope, you would see the living cells of a snake. It wasn't a stick that behaved like a snake. It was a snake. So what's Rabbi Kiva's opinion? So the Greeks talked about a fifth element called ether, (laughs) which is, in their their silly language, this is the um, material that the gods are made of which is ridiculous, of course. It means a a reality beyond our reality. But the thing is this, that there is something that is larger than all of the individual elements in the language of Jewish philosophy. It's called koyi the possibility of existence. And the koyi the possibility is considered to be the quintessence or the fifth element that kind of holds it all together. And modern science has terminology that equals The basic nuclear physics and then the pull that brings everything together that allows for physical existence. So this really was the question. How deep did the transformation pervade? Did it only change the nuclear physics of this item or was it actually a global change, if you will, in the way that this item related to all items around it, emitting a particular energy and a certain rhythm? In the way that all of nuclear physics has an effect one upon the other, you know, like the idea of the butterfly effect, everything is interlocking. So, this is the argument, according to the Ritva, of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. Obviously, the way I'm explaining it in English, but that's essentially the argument. Rabbi Akiva, says the Ritva, he holds meina mikoy he talks about the ethereal or quint, fifth essence, by the way quintessence in English still means the core, the very quiddity as they call it, comes from the term quid or five in Latin that is that which allows for physics to exist altogether and this is the question the kolboi says something very similar and there are other who allude to this as well and there's much more to talk about uh, when we're studying the Haggadah but we're not now <laughs> now we're learning but the Pasch Lechem says this, even if the alchemist could create silver on the surface, even if he could make the metal look like gold or look like silver, he is not actually able to change the nuclear physics. And by the way, we can't change the nuclear physics. We can create counterfeit material, we can make things, mimic other things, but we cannot create the nuclear physics. We can make a cubic zirconium today, which is so precise, so exact, that as I talked about in previous episodes, is actually very difficult and soon will probably be impossible for ordinary gemologists to tell apart from a real diamond and this of course bodes uh, ill for the 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 entire market of gemology how will you ever know if you have a real diamond or not I have a bit of a counterintuitive take so who cares but my wife doesn't like hearing that. I don't think. The people who like to wear diamonds, they want to wear a real diamond. I'd say, what's the difference? <laughs> what's the difference if Hashem exerted the pressure that would have taken millions of years during those first days of creation to make your diamond, or if uh, it got made artificially? If it looks the same, what's the difference? I went to the London Tower many, many years ago. When I was there for my brother's wedding and they, you know, they show you the crown jewels and then you, everybody's ooing and eye, and I heard years later that it's not even the crown jewels. It's just a clever fake. And everybody's looking at it through the glass and nobody knows the difference. And really, what difference would it make? I don't know. This is beyond my pay grade. But it makes a difference to people. And the alchemist does not advertise the Kubrick zirconian nature of his gold or silver. He's selling gold and silver for real prices. And so, he's got a secret. He's got a secret. He's doing something unnatural. He's doing something which people would not be impressed with if they would find out. So, if his shindig gets highlighted, if everybody all of a sudden finds out that the gold they bought wasn't real gold, the silver they purchased was counterfeit, ah, now what happens? And here's where it gets sticky. So, he's in mortal danger. From who? From the mob? From the government? From God? Who is he in mortal danger from? Who cares if his secret, so to speak, gets found out? So, let me read the words to you. And let me tell you that they they read a little bit difficult. It's, It's a little bit unwieldy. But the words read like this Umanig ha-kol Yashlit alav, He who controls everything will exert dominion over him. Me he who can kill him. Ki when he doesn't know to masquerade right. So if his cover gets blown, then the one who is able to exert dominion over him will exert dominion over him and the person who exerts dominion has the power of life and death. Who's the person? So we'll start off with the neder bako'ydosh. He says manig Hakoyl Umelech hamedina. That's the king. Now you'll remember Rabbeinu Bechai is living in 11th century Spain. In 11th century Spain, there's a monarchy and the definition of monarchy from a Torah perspective is the power of life and death in the hands of the king, but really in his mouth. The king or queen says, off at your head. And the head is removed from the shoulders. Simple as that. And nobody survives that. So that's like a death sentence. Which the real monarch can mete out in a heartbeat. Scary stuff. People were terrified of the monarchy for that exact reason. Then there were the benevolent monarchs who only chopped your hands or feet off if you were part of a rebellion. Not very nice. So, really and truly, we talk about a monarch who has absolute power. And when a monarch who has absolute power finds out that there's a counterfeiter in his midst, he's enraged. You're endangering the economy. Who knows? Maybe some of the gold he bought is fake gold. So, the person's secret vocation, which enabled him to make so much money so easily, to be so comfortable, like a walk in the park, all of a sudden, becomes a walk into the grave. That's the way the Ned of HaKadosh reads the words, "Um the Manik HaKol, meaning the king the leader of them all Yashlatalov, he is has dominion over him mishi he who can kill him so but it's a little unwieldy umanagakol yashlatolov mishi miseu manakakomi is the leader of them all yashlatolov means exerts dominion over him shegi miseu mishi he who can kill him it it doesn't read easy there's a mouthful here it's like uh, unnecessary commas and dashes. It, doesn't, it, it could have been written more simply. The he says, Manik HaKol, Melech. We talk here about the king. shiltein, government. Government at the time was also very powerful. Governments were corrupt. And the government could oftentimes do as it pleased and would not have to answer for it. So, Whoever it is in governance can find this out and can take affirmative action. Painful affirmative action can actually even bring about the execution of the person who is perceived to be harming the interests of the government or of the nation. But like I said, it's a mouthful. Is this really what the Rebbeinah was talking about? I don't know if it's because the nature of the way this is structured, as in it being a mouthful, or because really and truly the other scholars believe that we were speaking here about more than simply being caught by the king. But there is another way to learn pshat, another way to explain Rabbeinu B'chayi's supposition that the alchemist is a proverbial counterfeiter, And as such, when his secret vocation is discovered, he will pay with his life. Let me take you to the commentary known as Marpil Nefesh. The Marpil Nefesh says, in my view, he says this could best be understood by virtue of a statement that the Talmud makes, the Gemara makes in Mesechet Brachot, the first of the tractates on page 55, on side A. There are three things that bring to the fore a person's sins. So let's take a look at this Gemara. Gemara in Dafton Hay is actually talking about whether spending an inordinate amount of time in prayer is a healthy thing to do. Whether it's effective, whether it gets the answers to your prayers, or in fact... To be counterproductive, so the Gemara seems to indicate that it's a very productive thing. And then the Gemara says, "No, no, no! It's, I don't think it's so productive." Because the Gemara says, the Gemara brings one question, but in what seems to contradict the previous, the former statement, and then the Gemara goes on and says like this: "Va'amar Rabbi Yitzchak, and Rabbi Yitzchak Dvarim, there are three things.'" Adam that serve as a reminder, serve to highlight or emphasize the sins of a person. The Elohein, and these are they. Kir notui, a teetering wall, a wall that is unsafe. In other words, putting yourself in a in a danger zone, in a place where the wall may collapse. Like um, after the terrible tragedy in Surfside, imagine somebody insisting that they're not going to move out of the, the next tower. Yeah, you know, the one tower fell, but I'm going to be fine here. I'm not moving out. Imagine that. You'd say the person's insane. In fact, they demolished the rest of that building for obvious reasons. Who, who could risk ever living in a building that had experienced such a calamitous collapse? The terrible, terrible loss of life. Akir Notu is like that. It's, a, it's a, a, a building that's condemned. A wall that we expect is going to collapse. So for a person to be there, it's unwise, besides the fact that it's just unwise, it's mm-hmm. it reminds a person, it, reminds, it brings to light a person's sins. Now the Sifsech explained explaining the Gemara, this is not necessarily speaking about a wall, or a building that's about to collapse. It means putting yourself in a place of danger. Putting yourself in a dangerous position. Is a bad idea. Why? Because when you put yourself in a dangerous position. What you're saying is. God's going to make miracles happen for me. I'm not worried. I'll be fine. I'll take my chances. And in that, se- in that sense. A person is relying on a miracle. That's actually wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Because what happens is, says the Gemara, when you start to rely on miracles, you're actually making a statement. It kind of says, I deserve miracles. I'm going to be fine because, you know, I'm extremely meritorious. And that proverbially causes your books to be examined. A silly example is that sometimes people will have expenses on the books that serve as a red flag. And a good accountant will tell his, his client, this doesn't look right. You can't do this. And the person will go, well, why not? I didn't really do anything wrong. I say, yes, but it's a red flag. You don't want a red flag. You don't want, if you live in the States, the, the IRS, or if you live in Canada, the CRA, you don't want them in your business. You don't want them. It's, it's a, this like, you, don't, you just don't want this. You don't look for red flags. And if you, if you put red flags out there, then you're going to cause an investigation. And nobody's perfect. And who needs an investigation? You want to be investigated by heaven? What are you shouting out from the rooftops? I'm a tzaddik. I'm perfect. I never leave a T uncrossed. I never leave an I undotted. I got it all together. When you measure me against the person I could be, which is incidentally the only one we're ever judged against, I come out squeaky clean. Looking like a million bucks. I deserve miracles. Really you do? Well, the angels get busy. So let's check this guy's books. We got a red flag here. In sadag barat ashalayate. There is nobody is perfect. Everybody has a shenanigan here or there. We are but flesh and we at times slip and trip and sometimes end up in the dirt. So why would you want to call attention to that? What would you want to emphasize that for? They call it in English, lying low. And then the Gemara goes on, incidentally, to say that ion that spending a lot of time davening is also uh, not such a good idea because it's as if you're saying, I know my prayers get answered. I'm special. Making statements like, I'm special, my prayers are unique and different. That always kind of uh, causes a red flag too. And the last thing, incidentally, the Gemara says is, a person who says, God should judge you. Let God judge what you did. And you point a finger at somebody else, but you know, when you point a finger at somebody else, you're always pointing four, three or four at, your own, at yourself. So when you are, when you cause heaven's attention to be drawn to somebody else, you may end up in some hot water yourself. So don't judge anybody, don't be judgmental. Don't go around deciding who is evil and bad and abhorrent and abominable and so on and so forth. Try to imagine that everybody means well and give them the benefit of the doubt. And that's not a contradiction to objectively saying this action is wrong, this is inappropriate, I'm not judging the individual. Who am I to judge them? Were I to be in their position, I would do probably much worse. So I can't judge them as a horrible person, unless I wanna say I'm a horrible person. I can say, objectively speaking, this is wrong by the Tory yardstick, and I'm going to try to avoid that. And I feel bad. It's sad that the person got caught up. But maybe they, maybe they had issues, maybe they were abused, and maybe something happened. I, I don't know. And, and the truth is, you don't know. There's a Chinese proverb that says something like, never judge a man until you've walked a thousand miles in his shoes. I don't think you have to walk a thousand miles in somebody's shoes. I don't think you ever have to judge him. The Chinese want to judge you, but first they want to walk a thousand miles in your shoe. Okay, Confucius. Torah says, who asked you to judge? Not only you shouldn't judge, the Gemara says, you don't be the one to serve the papers and say, okay, I want God to judge you. I want you to be judged. I don't want you to be judged. And then ask if anybody be judged. Live and let live. Objectively, what's wrong is wrong. And it's rahmanus, it's sad that you ended up going down the path and I wish you wouldn't do it. And, and that's the end of the story. That, without being condemning of the person, you can condemn an action, you don't have to condemn a person. And you don't even have to ask God to condemn the person. In fact, if you look at Father Abraham, he said maybe, maybe, it did, of course he did wrong things, but maybe there's some kind of meritorious excuse. Maybe there's... Something that can be said to stay the punishment. Maybe there's somebody righteous there. That's the Torah, the true Torah attitude. At any rate, what, what, we're, what we're being told with this Gemara is that when you put yourself in a dangerous situation, you're actually asking for trouble. And so, the Marpil Nefesh says, So don't you understand what a B'chayim means? He's not talking about the, the king who's going to kill you. At the end of the day, you talked about betochen. You believe everything comes from Hashem. If it comes from God, then what's the question? He said, yeah, that's precisely the issue. What would you put yourself in danger for? Why are you living on the edge? Who asked you to play Russian roulette? That's not a cute game. One of those barrels, one of those holes, that's got a not a slug, it's a bullet. You know, one of those, those M&M's has got cyanide. You don't play these kind of games. Why expose yourself to danger? So the Bible in Nefer Nefesh says, Harei If you look at that Gemara, in eini sakana, If a person doesn't put himself in a place of danger, in other words, where he needs special divine deliverance, he can be saved. Who says it's payment day? Maybe it's not payment day. God has lots of patience. Hopefully I'll still do tshuva. I did so many things wrong. I'll make up for it. Don't worry. Just, just don't ask for it today. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not ready to pay the bill today. However, if the person thumbs his nose at the proverbial source of destruction, He's not afraid. He says, I know God's on my side. I can walk tight ropes. I can walk a minefield. It's gonna be fine. Oh, he says, in that case, and, and there he says the martyr and hefesh, Kane When you do things which can't be published in the five o'clock news, when you do things which you can't post on Facebook, things which you can't tweet or put on TikTok, Nishgut. If you can't put it there, don't do it because what if, uh, what if somebody did take a picture? And what if it does get out there? And then, if it gets out, you're gonna be in trouble. As long as you can, so to speak, fly under the radar. All right, you fly under the radar. You fly under the radar with people. You fly under the radar with God. But sticking your neck out, making a spectacle, putting yourself in harm's way, standing in the trajectory of the bullets that are flying, now you're in trouble. Up until now, I your time didn't come you can always so to speak be saved by Hashem you can always turn around and vaporize the negative energy you engendered by virtue of your inappropriate or even rebellious actions like anybody does anything wrong when the person doesn't have the wisdom to just don't talk and don't tell and don't make a spectacle and don't put yourself in danger and a lot of times, people who do shady things just can't control themselves. They have to boast to somebody. And that boasting is what gets them into trouble. And then they're living on the edge, playing that proverbial game of Russian roulette. <speaking in Hebrew> then the Benish Shalelam, the real balchayv, the one who we are all indebted to, oh yes <laughs> did you pay for your eyesight your digestion your brain capacity your lungs your liver your pancreas these are very valuable things you can't live without them kidney failure is a disaster Hashem gave all these things to us for free what did He ask in turn for payment He asked her to behave like a mensch he has to live a mission-driven, purposeful life. But if instead you behaved inappropriately, then our debtor may decide to collect. And that will not be a good thing. And so the Marpilenefesh says, this is all understood from the way Rashi explains this gemara. And in, what he means to say is, this is Rashi in his commentary here in this gemara, as well as Rashi HaMesechet Rosh Hashanah, where the same Gemara is brought down. And that's essentially what comes forth in Rashi. And um, Rashi here doesn't say, in, say it in as many words. But even here he says, "Shall Yidei Mishap, Mish, pardon me. Mepashveshim Lumailo By doing so, they start looking into his deeds. This guy is very comfortable. He says he's uh, he's doing great. And so, let's see if he's as great as he thinks he is. And therefore, putting yourself in harm's way, a bad idea. Not good. Now you're actually in harm's way. Because putting yourself physically in harm's way puts you in harm's way from the real manig hakoil, from the ruler of it all. Vani and so Marpil Nefer says, I interpret then the words Kirl, Who is the ruler, the leader of them all? Hashem is baruch. Hashem is baruch. Who is Kirl. He is mashlit alov. Shaliyucholahale mesaydi. He Hashem might exert dominion over you, and so that you will not conceal your secret. Because by adopting your Ponzi scheme way of making a living, you automatically put yourself into danger. Ki you have accelerated the process, and your time has arrived. And now, Hashem chafetz b'misaseh. Your debtor, God, is here to collect. zman Hashem when Hashem does not wish to, so to speak, collect or harvest the life, You'll be able to conceal. Sometimes circumstances are such that you didn't mean to tell. You didn't mean to say anything. But that's the way it came out. Then the Marple and Nefer says, I heard others studying the Shara say that Manik Hakel refers to the leader of the country. And he says, And he says, choose as you please very interesting he says i don't i don't know with certainty what abenu B'chaya meant i do know he says these secrets can be fatal if it gets out you're going to be in trouble whether you're in trouble with the king of all kings or the king of your country in either way in either circumstance you end up in trouble and you have to pay the price the past lechem has the same issue he also tries to understand what did the Beinu mean when he says that uh, there's the Manig So he says, Paslechem says, what do you mean? Manig The leader of it all? It's got to be HaKadosh Baruch For sure, Beinu B'chaim meant God. Yashlit Allah What does it mean? So he, Paslechem is very creative here. He says, Manig HaKoyl. Manig must mean God. Yashlit Allah. He will make, exert dominion. He will rule Put over you a ruler. What does that mean? He will send over you the person who is Peter's Hashem, ish, Hashem will send the person who actually controls your life. So it is God, but God sends a messenger. The messenger could be the king, it could be the magistrate, it could be the judicial system, it could be the government, whatever it's going to be. Hashem has his ways. You, found, you are found wanting in Hashem's eyes because you foolishly put yourself in the line of fire. Waiting for miracles, got yourself red flagged and investigated, and then you got a, you got a a, a, a ruling against you, a ruling against yourself from heaven. They simply put you in harm's way for real. So that shalot yashli to love is that ruler, that person who has dominion over you. And then you won't be able to hide your secret from him. In other words, le'yemutsa eifin The Bianchi of has a little bit of uh, a unique take on all this. He says that it's not just about putting yourself in danger. He says that if God gave you the secrets, and he seems to view the alchemist, again, it's a proverbial thing, but he seems to view the alchemist not as a counterfeiter, not as a Ponzi schemer, and not as a person who traffics in narcotics. He seems to view the alchemist as a person who is blessed. He, he stumbled upon this amazing secret. So he says, you stumbled upon a secret good, keep it to yourself. That's for you to know. Hashem gave you a special ability to be able to make a living. But, he says, if you start to share this and you become boastful about it, what happens is, is you're going to cause others to have an abundance. That's your causing. And because you're causing that, he says, you may end up in some very, very hot water. Because, as the prophet Hosea said, and I gave them a lot of silver, the and gold, I made them a lot of silver and they made gold for the Baal, for the idol. So not everybody can handle the challenge or test of wealth. Wealth can really rip a person's soul apart. Money is a pretty big evil if you let it control you. And not everybody is able to control themselves and their money. For many people money goes straight to the head And drives them crazy. And they start to think that they're all powerful. And they start to think they're almighty and start to think do as they please. And that makes them, if you will, rebel against Hashem and behave in a way which is entirely unwholesome, inappropriate, and even sinful. And Yankivemda says that's what we're talking about. He says, Don't don't tell your secrets. So, but you're going to be tempted to tell your secrets. The person who's got a secret is going to be tempted to share it with somebody. People like to blurt things out. People like to boast. People like to, 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 to publicize. It's human nature. We don't do very well at anonymity. People love to get likes on Facebook. They love to get shares on Tweet. Some people value their self-worth on how many likes or how many shares or, or how, many, how many pokes or whatever. That's just like a commodity almost. And that's a problem. Because since that's human nature, you, your secret's going to be out of the bag, and if your secret's out of the bag, Hashem may well not be happy with it. And if you provoke God's ire, you're going to be in trouble. So we have at least three ways of understanding the words of Rabbeinu B'chaya. Um <laughs> As the Marple and Nefesh said, knock yourself out. You can choose whichever way you wish to look at it, the point, or some of what we say here is that you're putting yourself in harm's way. So the alchemist has, has it all made and he's in the shay- made in the shade and everything is great, but really it's not so great. He's actually, he's actually in a very dangerous position. And his secret, which brought him so much happiness, or so he thought, with lots of money and wealth, actually ended up being his very undoing. There are people who had no money and then all of a sudden had money. And not only did they not prosper, but they behaved in ways so unhealthy and inappropriate that it actually cost them their lives. And that's kind of what Abin Machiah alludes to here. Say it's not alchemy. Say you, you have a way of predicting the lottery. You can doctor the lottery, you can break into their computer and you can figure out a way to make yourself win, whatever it might be. In the end, it'll come back to bite you. You got a secret. It's making life really good now, but in truth it's actually a fatal secret. It may make your life good, easy, enjoyable, fun for a time but it can end up claiming the greatest price of all. What about the person who trusts in Hashem? I want to make a little confession. Before I began to really study about Betochen I used to mistakenly think that just like a person who puts himself in danger or a person who prays for very long is actually highlighting his own inadequacies, I used to think that maybe being sure that Hashem will do good things for me is not a good idea. Maybe that gets God to start looking. Maybe it's good to be a little nervous, worried, concerned, davening. that then I discovered Shara And then I realized that the power of betochen is not where you say, I deserve my merits. Betochen is not about us deserving, it's about us trusting. Goodness comes our way not because we deserve it, but because Hashem is our Father. Because He loves us. Not because we are deserving. It's a relationship of a child to a parent rather than an employee and an employer. The employee says, I did a really good job. Another employee says, I didn't do such a good job. I'm not so sure I deserve that promotion. I'm not gonna make any demands, I'm not gonna have any expectations. If I get it, wow, but I don't know if I really deserve it. But if you're a child before Hashem, and the Torah specifically says, you are children. Ah, if you're a child, if you're a child you're sure that your father, that your grandfather, your grandmother, your, gra- your, ma- your mother, they will take care of you because your mother loves you. Your parents will take care of you, not because you're deserving. And the virtue of developing that kind of relationship with Hashem, the, the reward of having that kind of inner peace and tranquility in and of itself becomes the envelope of the pipeline through which those divine blessings flow. We just have to keep working, trusting Hashem. Hashem doesn't want us to be worried, filled with anxiety, concerned. He wants us to trust in Him. It's an avidah. It's very difficult. We've talked a lot about this in the previous episodes. If you're just joining now, I really encourage you to go back and to listen and to contemplate and to try to download this message. Because it's something that you need to continuously talk about and ruminate upon and think about. It's very easy to lose the betach. You have to constantly work at it. So this betach bashem, kashi yivada The person says, how are you so calm? What are you so relaxed about? What do you have, a, some kind of secret weapon? Do you have a secret way to pay your bills? And the person says, I'll tell you my secret. I am a yid who lives with betochen. I trust in Hashem, Yisbarach. And because I place my trust in Hashem, I'm not afraid of you, and I'm not worried about what anybody can do. In the end, the Almighty is in control, and I refuse to submit to any other force of power. You don't have to say it in a garish way. You don't have to go and stick it in somebody's face. That's putting yourself in danger. But if somebody asks you a secret, I that's the truth. The truth is, I'm not worried because I trust Hashem. Uh-oh. My secret's out now. He says, this is not going to in any way diminish your stature. It's not going to make you the target of people who are now trying to do something to you because you have a secret. Yigdal On the contrary, this is not going to, so to speak, demean or disparage or diminish you. It will raise you in the eyes of the other creations, of the other people. B'nei adam. It's interesting that there's a distinction between briyas and b'nei adam. B'ryas are creatures, and as is explained elsewhere, it means somebody who is only virtuous by means of the fact that they were created. You know, people joke to say you're born or hatched. It's like a euphemism. You're a reptile, or you're a, a, a human. The point that's being made here is a briya is a person who is virtuous or has the right to, be, to human dignity, we have a responsibility toward this person because Hashem created them. Not by virtue of their own efforts. Not by virtue of their own achievements or accomplishments. Briyes. As the Rebbe many times explained, in the words, briyes. In the Mishnah that says that we should be disciples of Aranaka. that you love somebody even if the only virtue he has is the fact that he or she was created. You love them because they're created entities. If God created you, God doesn't make any junk, I have to respect you. I have to be I have to be mindful, compassionate, and considerate. I have to do what I can to preserve your dignity and treat you with a sense of reverence. Why? Because Hashem created you. So in the eyes of people like this, they'll be in awe. They'll go, wow, really? This person believes? Look at him. He's actually calm. He's not smoking anything. He doesn't have any secrets. He just believes in his God. Look at that. They may not respect you for it, but you'll be larger. You'll loom larger in their eyes. And then there are people who are what we call in Yiddish a mensch. A mensch. And she literally means a person. Torah defines a human being as an Odom. An Odom comes from the root word Adame, in the image of. Being created in the image of God is meaningful if you develop, nurture, and cultivate the potential and possibility that is placed within your DNA. A human being can be a selfish and cruel individual. He can be a savage. He can be a predatory animal. He can be so selfish that he or she chooses to cause pain or harm, suffering for their own self-advancement. You can be a a sadistic, vicious hunter, and anything is fair prey. Or you can be a mensch. You can develop your innate potential and possibility to be in the image of God. You know, there's a mitzvah to be godlike. What does that mean? To be godlike? You want to create worlds? You want to get people to worship you? No, of course not. What do we know about God? Our sages tell us the Torah reveals certain characteristics, behavioral characteristics. We know that God clothed the naked. When Adam and Eve discovered they were naked, who clothed them? God clothed them. Clothing the naked, providing clothes for people, which means providing dignity for people. Be it literal, actual material dignity by, by taking away their nakedness or being able to provide them cover. Being able to just to give them dignity. Which is proverbial clothes. That's to be godlike. I saw something beautiful the other day. I think I saw it on Facebook actually. I think I saw it multiple times till I actually read the little meme. But it was it was something beautiful. Makom alam deyascalto you can learn from from everyone and and from anything really. And it was it was this little thing about a, a mother who went to borrow salt from the neighbor. And the little boy says, Mama, why did you buy, borrow salt? We have salt at home. And the mother responds and says, that's a very needy family. They'll be asking us for all kinds of favors, because they must. But I want them to feel dignified, as if they too are givers, not only takers. I know all they have is salt, so they don't have to know we have salt. But by me asking them for salt, which is a cheap commodity... I've enabled them to feel comfortable about asking when they have a need. I don't know if that's true. How beautiful is that? How virtuous is that? That means clothing the naked. That means giving somebody a sense of self-worth, preserving their human dignity. So that's to be godlike. When you can preserve somebody's dignity, of course you can't go telling everybody about it. That's... that's uh, shaming or literally tearing somebody's clothes off in public. That's between you and God. You can tell your children so that they learn how to behave. That means, what else does God do? He visits the sick. Abraham is sick. God visits. Visit the sick. To find time in your busy schedule, to spend time with somebody who's suffering with ill health is a godlike act. It means to be godlike. Somebody doesn't have food. Somebody's missing sustenance or nourishment, which can be as literal or simple as providing actual food. Or it could be you take the time to give a person food for thought. You take the time to sustain a person by giving them a sense of self worth. That's to be godlike. When we say act like a mensch, it's very different than people saying, Well, I'm just human. I'm just human seems to indicate, Well, what do you want from me? So I did stupid things. So I behaved selfishly and inappropriately and cruelly and savagely. I'm just human. To which a Torah Jew says, That's not human. That's beastly. That's like a wild animal where well, you ripped somebody's guts out because I'm just a lion? Because so I'm just a tiger? You're a mensch. Be a mensch. Be a mensch means to actualize the potential of Adam. Even the people who are just b'r'yes, the people who are just creatures, they will also, you will, you will be enhanced in their eyes. You will not be demonized for your faith. People won't say, what a dumbbell, what a fool. They'll be impressed. Be a chabdu Adam. And a mensch, A mensch, a person who is refined. A person who has worked on themselves and doesn't give in to every whim and behave in the lowest common fashion. It's a ben adam. A ben adam will respect you. Even if the ben adam is part of a different faith system. Even if the ben adam is a person with no faith at all. Calls himself agnostic or atheistic. If he sees you sincere about your faith, he'll respect you for it. You might not agree, but a mensch will respect you. So this is really interesting. Here we have the scholars debating what exactly this means. The word yisbarch literally means that the people will be blessed from the word bracha. What will they be blessed by? Does, not, you didn't bless them. He says, well, in his closeness, and in... Okay. So now I have to go to, to our scholars to find out what this actually means. The Manoyach Halavovois, So we haven't mentioned yet in today's class, he says... What Rabbeinu B'chayim means to say is People are proud to have a relationship with this individual. This is what you call in English when he says, I'm proud to call this person a friend. Even though they don't agree with you. But they're impressed to the point that they take pride in their relationship. They feel good that they have the opportunity for FaceTime; they can see you. is he says, milshayin b'iteya berech. It means to, to 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 glorify, to be impressed with, to 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 delight in. So so this is basing on bases, basing on the idea that we find in the book of Tehillim. He means to say that we, what we what we can see here is that these are people who will feel good about their relationship, their proximity, their closeness, and the fact that, that they have uh, what they would consider the good fortune to count this person amongst their friends. The Neder Bar takes a bit of a different view here. He brings down a Rebbe Yosef Shadavir, who says that Yosef Shadavir maintained that there was a printing mistake and that the word should not say isoi with an aleph, but rather uver'o'isoy with an ayin. And he says that is his hizdapkos. That indicates association, friendship, cleaving, closeness, relationship by virtue of the pasuk. The verse that's found in the 122nd Psalm in the 8th verse says achai On behalf of my brothers, my brethren, and my friends. So re'ai is like a friend. Somebody who have a close relationship with these. He says with an and means that people are delighted. They, they take pride in their, their closeness. Their relationship, their friendship that they enjoy with this person. They're cleaving, so to speak, to this person. And he says, he brings a proof of this because at the end of this statement, Rabbeinu Baha'i will be focusing on Lot. Lot came to a place called Tsar, and Tzor was saved by virtue of Lot, and we'll talk about that soon. But he says. Nedab HaKadosh says, with all due respect, I don't really see his point. Because with regard to Lot, that only proves that Hashem might shield others in the merit of a righteous person. It doesn't indicate having a relationship. He says, the Baal HaManoech, who we talked about earlier, interprets it as seeing. Those who, so to speak, catch sight of. And Hedabakh says, Ainanira, I don't see it that way. Because if it meant seeing, it should have says Re'i yosoi, reish Yud Yud But it doesn't say that. It says with one yud. Ki rauhu t'chila. First you see, you catch sight from a distance, and then you come closer. So he says, therefore, Nedab HaKadosh says, in my view, what Abedinu B'chai meant here was not seeing or even closeness of friendship. He says, in my view, the word means here is a paradigm. A riya. This is an example, he says. And that is, people should say, I wish I could trust the way this person trusts. I wish I could be so sure. I wish I would feel such a closeness to God. In other words, not only they respect this person, they use this person as a paradigm that they would like to emulate. Or they say, they speak about trust and say like like the kind of trust that that person has in Hashem. Try it. For real. And you'll see people respond that way. They really will respect you. Even in today's woke world. They really will respect a person of sincere faith who behaves in a way which is sensitive and compassionate, morally minded, and righteously seeking. A person like that will earn the respect of others. It's invariable. And the Beinu says that's the point here: that the bateiach, the trusting individual in Hashem, actually becomes a paradigm that others look to for inspiration, a source of inspiration. And the Paslechem says, Yisrael Lubei, people praise him and they, they, they glorify themselves with their relationship. People feel close to them where they can see him. What does seeing him have to do? The Paslechem says like, he follows the approach of the Meneuch HaLvaves, but says, when does seeing do anything? pas Lechem says something very interesting. He says, people actually can learn from seeing you. And we see an example of this in the Gemara, in Erevin, on page 13, side B. The Gemara says, Ama Rabbi. Rabbi says, The fact that I was sharper, I became sharper in my lessons, or learned my lessons better than my peers, is because... Because I saw Rabbi Meir. I sat close to him. I was one of his inner circle. And sitting behind him as he taught, I could catch sight of his profile. I could see him. I could see him teaching. Because I could see his, his, him teaching. So, pardon me, And if I would have seen him in the of sitting in front of him, I would be even sharper. I'd be even better at that. So the Marsha says that this is not a mystical or spiritual thing. It's something that in modern times we know this. Communication experts speak about it all the time. People don't listen to what you said. They listen or learn from your facial expressions. In fact, body language and facial expression is said to sometimes convey up to 90% of the message even more than inflection. So when you're looking at somebody teaching, when you're seeing somebody teaching, and this is why today many people prefer studying video rather than audio, because seeing the facial expression of the person who's communicating that message in and of itself is part of the lesson. So what's the Paslecham saying? He's saying if this person is virtuous, he will be able to inspire and teach others not only by virtue of what he or she says, but when people will see that this individual has faith, when you can actually see it, you can see when a person is actually calm and trusts in Hashem. And just, just seeing a person like this makes an enormous difference. There's a story told one of the yeshivas I think it was in, in Lubavitch there was an old man an old chassid who wasn't really much of a teacher anymore if my memory doesn't fail me they told the story of Rebbe Mechol Bliner Rebbe Mechol Der Alte they called him Rebbe Mechol was an old man and his, his brain power wasn't what it was in his youth and yet he was paid to be in the yeshiva every day and somebody once asked Rebbe Reb Hashab Reb what does he get paid for? And the Rebbe said that for the students to see such a person even if they can't learn actually just to see a person like this to pray see how a person like this studies Torah that in and of itself is worth a full salary. Think about your youth and think about people who were inspiring to you. Some of them inspired you without ever saying a word to you. Just just by what you saw that's how a person of faith is viewed he will likely influence people he never actually speaks to or he doesn't even know just because they're in his proximity just because they can see the way a person with faith behaves how he treats others and how he's always so certain that a Kodesh Baruch will shield protect and provide for him and so, Rabbeinu Bahaya says, the scheming alchemist, the Ponzi maker, or whatever you call him, the person who is perhaps turning a quick buck by unlocking codes or turning easy, easy um, activities into lucrative and very, very um, profitable enterprises, that person in the end is going to get caught. And that person in the end, once his secret's out, it might even cost him his life. But the person who has trust in Hashem, which gives him all the things, by the way, that that schemer gets. The schemer is happy and he's satisfied and he's got endless ability or so he thinks. The person with faith is happy. He's satisfied. He's calm. He's tranquil. He trusts in Hashem. And his secret is not a risk and doesn't pose any danger. On the contrary, when people discover his secret, his virtue only grows in their eyes. He's more appreciated, more highly respected. He's treated with a greater sense of esteem and love. And Rebbeinu B'chayah finishes and he says, This person will be a source of goodness for the city in which he or she lives. The person will even exude some kind of otherworldly or paranormal force to be able to shield the people living with him. Kosov as is written and here Rabbeinu B'chayi draws on a beautiful scripture the scripture says <laughs> this scripture is taken from the book of Mishle the book of the proverbs of king solomon in the 10th chapter the 25th verse he talks about the evil of the wicked contrasted with the achievements and accomplishments the contributions of the righteous Tzaddik, The tzaddik is a foundation of the worlds or of existence. As the Ibn Ezra puts it, tzaddik, chazok, lezaris, That A strong tzaddik serves to shield from bitter or difficult or painful times. Civilized life roots itself, bases itself on that person. Rabbeinu Yoina says, tzidkasay. The energy engendered by this righteous individual saves others from difficulty, from harrowing times. Because in the end, he makes a difference for the public. And perhaps, perhaps Rebbeinu B'chaya believed that this truism is inherently or intuitively known by others. The Marple and Nefesh says, this is something we find in a fascinating Gemara in Meseches Brachus. On page 17b, the Gemara says, every single day during the lifetime of the individual whom we're going to speak about. There's a baskol yoitzis ma there is a heavenly voice that rings out from Mount Horov, which is a euphemism, a code name for Mount Sinai. It's a place where broadcasts come from. You just have to be tuned into the dials to hear. And this broadcast would say, The whole world is right now being sustained because of my proverbial child, Hanina. This is the righteousness of Rabbi Hanina ben Deise that brought about wonderful things for everybody else. And the interesting thing is that it says that Rabbi Hanina ben Deise, he was... Uh, didn't eat very much. The but he himself? Well, the Gemara says, He's good enough with a, a, a small measure of carob. A very frugal individual. That's all he eats from Shabbos to Shabbos. During the week he just eats a few carobs. So that doesn't sound right. So he, the whole world benefits and is sustained by him and all he gets is some carobs? <laughs> so the Mefarshim explained, the Siv-Sircham and others... He didn't want more. He was perfectly happy with some caribs. It was fine. Had he wanted, he could have asked. He would have received. Others received divine beneficence on his behalf. And so, the Marple Pala says from this we can see that in the end, the person who is able to live with his or her faith and to nurture that faith in a premious and an inward way actually makes a world of difference. The Paslechem says, a person who's righteous and a person who's filled with faith and trust in Hashem invariably will make a positive difference not only on a spiritual level but even literally will bring about good things like it says about Father Jacob. That immediately when he encamped near Shechem, he brought about good things for the people. He had good ideas. Hashem gave him good ideas. A good person Brings goodness with them. So others benefit from him. And he's not worried about losing anything by bringing benefit to others because he trusts in Hashem. He is powered by his trust and by his faith. And Obeyna Bechiah finishes with the words inyan loit as per the idea of Lot in Soar. So it's very interesting the way he puts that. Ke'inion. Like the idea of Lot and Sar. And this bothered me because Lot is actually not such a righteous fellow. And Lot, in the end, he is saved, but not by virtue, of his own righteousness. True enough. So I did some research to see what the Mufarshim say about Lot. And originally, Hashem had planned to literally uproot or turn over all five provinces these five boroughs of this, or five little mini provinces, in this beautiful place that today is called the Dead Sea Panorama. Desert, windswept, empty. Hardly anything grows there. But Tsar was saved. And Avram Avinu had pleaded, maybe God would save just one of these areas. And Hashem said, no. But yet when Lot was in Tsar, Hashem didn't destroy Tsar because of Lot. But Lot wasn't a righteous guy. (laughs) He didn't deserve to be saved altogether so what does Rabbeinu B'chayim mean so I noticed the Sepharon says something very interesting Rabbeinu Avadiyah Sepharon says later on the verse says that Lot decided to check out of Tsar and go into a cave and you know that's a whole story what happens in that cave it's not so pretty but they meant well why did he do that so the Sepharon says B'hiyois Shanimlat Avraham Lot knew that he was saved by virtue of Avraham he knew that. And he thought, Lot thought, I know I was saved by Avram. I know that I'm here and in the virtue of Avram, now, this city isn't being destroyed. But he said, you know what? Maybe that's a little too much to ask for. Yorei l'sheves but is afraid to remain in Sawyer. he said, because he thought maybe soon this city that for now is escaping because of the zuchus of Avram, maybe it's not going to sustain everybody maybe it's only going to be for me. It wasn't entirely wrong because Lot was saved. So, Keinian Lot Betzoar doesn't mean Hashem saved Lot because of his righteousness. It means Hashem saved Lot and by extension Tzoar because of the righteousness of Avraham. And as you may remember and as you we will yet learn, one of the great virtues of Avraham was his faith and his trust in Hashem. And we learned in a previous episode, it says, Hashem says about Avraham, because, v'yachshveh el tzedakah, Ba Hashem, he believed in Hashem, v'yachshveh el and as I shared with you a couple of episodes ago, the Mafarshim say, what does it mean, v'hemmin? Shabbatach. Rabbeinu and Kadakemach Kemach says, that, the II, that that was Avraham Avinu's faith actualized. Although it says the word faith, hemin actually means Betochen. And so, my friends, we have now completed the journey of ten points. We have illustrated in ten different ways how the bala Betochen is superior to even the proverbial alchemist, which was like the greatest dream come true for a person who sought wealth and plenty and power and wherewithal and thought that money could buy happiness. And the Bein showed in no less than ten ways. Now, that individual places himself at a huge disadvantage. Not a single one of those disadvantages, however, is experienced by the Bala Betochen. And so, we continue to make the case for Betochen. And let me say this in closing. Anything that has to have the case made for it so carefully, so thoroughly, is obviously not going to be easy to obtain. Betochen is probably the single hardest thing you and I will ever have to work on. Beinu B'chai is telling us it's worth every minute. Every ounce of strength we invest in Betochen will bring us rewards and spadefuls. I've heard people say Bitcoin is the future. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. Betochen is the future. If we can only strengthen our Betochen, we will bring a fresh flow of bracha, of blessings for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, for Am Yisrael. And by living with faith, internalized and taking it personally in a very real way, we will amir tz'ashan to full deliverance with the coming of Mashiach speedily and in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining. I'd really appreciate it if you could share with others who might benefit from this message of faith and trust in Hashem. Hit like if you don't mind. And please, if you haven't yet, subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Have a beautiful day, and I look forward to seeing you back.